Hey, folks, we just want you to know that all the views and opinions expressed on Military Historians or People Too are ours and that of our guests. They do not represent any organizations, employers, and other entities with which we and our guests may be affiliated or associated. Okay? Got it? Good. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody. Brian's going to join us in just a minute. He's having technical difficulties, so I just exposed him for his Wi-Fi troubles at lovely Hilton Head at our production studios there. Uh, that's what he gets for going there right before Christmas. Uh, it's probably probably too busy. It is right before Christmas. This won't come out until probably in uh, late February, early March, but we hope everybody had a lovely holiday and, and a happy new year and hope, that, hope 2023 is going well so far. Do our shout outs real quick, uh, as always, to our fellow podcast, Modern Scholar, Bowen Blade, the War Room at the Army War College. Since our guest today is John McManus, we will give a shout out, of course, to uh, the American version of We Have Ways of Making You Talk, as well as the, the, the UK version. It's Al Murray and James Holland, right? Right. Yeah, yeah I, right. You know, those are great. They really, they've got that. Oh, the best. Right? Have you, the ever, best. have you been to the, the their festival, their fest? Yes, I, I went this year, uh, this, this okay. past July. So July twenty two, it was a blast. I had so much fun. I was where was amazed it at? How many people were there? Yeah, where was it at? So it's it's at a um, it's it's a very innocuous place. I don't even remember what it's called, but it's like a an open field area, not that far from Oxford, maybe fifteen miles from Oxford, something okay. like that. Right. Uh, we stayed in uh, Bister. I think okay. I think the town of Bister. That's where everybody stayed. The hotel, and then they um, we we took a van or a bus or whatever, like a twenty minute drive, something along those right. lines. It was. I mean, it was so almost it, like it was like the traditional British, you know, village fate almost. Almost, yeah. right? It, I mean, I, yeah, and because I, 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 I followed it on Twitter a little bit, and, and was just oh, did like, you? This just looks yeah. cool as hell. There were. I mean, I I was a amazed how many thousands of people were there how enthusiastic they were um yeah. how nice everybody was yeah. I, I was one of the very very few americans um it was just very interesting to get the international perspective on what i do right and uh, you know and certainly a major learning experience for me too and so i you know it's kudos to james and al for yeah. this um, this incredible audience that they built and they're they're basically spreading word about military history and educating people Oh, on absolutely. a lot of levels. Yeah. And yeah, there was really sharp people there. It was fun. Right. And, you know, and there, and you can tell, I hope what people think about what we're doing is that, you know, they're having a good time doing it. Definitely. Right. It's like, yeah. you don't take oh, it's just so much seriously. Fun. Right. But you're having a good time, but you're, you're right. You're, you're spreading, spreading a good, good word there. So additionally, uh, shout outs as always to university presses, especially our friends out in Lawrence at the ranch, uh, Hope they're doing well out there. Hope it's not too cold right now, although it's Lawrence, Kansas, so it probably is. But let me introduce our, our, our wonderful guest today. We finally got John McManus on. I've just told John that I've been <laughs> thinking about him for ever since we started. He, he's been on, on my short list to, to get on here, and we, we finally have gotten around to him, and, and we appreciate him working it out during the holidays here to join us. John is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He earned his B.A. in sports journalism. Wow, sports journalism. <laughs> and an M.A. in history from the University of Missouri and received his Ph.D. in American history at the University of Tennessee. While at UT, ah, see, I got to correct myself there because for me, John, UT is University of Texas. Oh, right. my wife would, 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 you know, she'd come after you for that. Because, yeah, I come mean, after you, right? I mean, it's, she'll it's, say this is the original UT. Tennessee no, 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 is the original see, UT. In Austin, they have the correct, they have the correct color of orange. And the burnt orange. That's right. That burnt, <laughs> that ugly burnt orange, right? While, <laughs> right. He was, while he was there, he served as the assistant director of the Center for the Study of War and Society. Is uh, also a participant in the University of Tennessee's Normandy Scholars Program. John joined the faculty at Missouri S&T as an assistant professor of U.S. military history, and he's now climbed to the ranks, climbed the ranks to become uh, the Missouri S&T's first curator's distinguished professor, which he got that back in 2014. That's an honor bestowed by the University of Missouri system. 
support research and teaching excellence and being just an all around cool guy, right? That's kind of <laughs> just for being a peach of a guy. Absolutely. Yeah, there you are. There you are. <laughs> In 2018-2019, he was the Leo A. Schifrin Chair of Naval and Military History at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. John is the author of more than a dozen books, and they are all wonderful and great reads and really important works. His first two books, The Deadly Brotherhood, The American Combat Soldier in World War II, and Deadly Sky, The American Combat Airman in World War II, came from his work with Veterans Oral Histories at the University of Tennessee. Alamo and the Ardennes, the untold story of the American soldiers who made the defense of Bastogne possible, won the Missouri Conference on History's Best Book Award. John is also the author of Grunts, the American Infantry Combat Experience, World War II through Iraq. Uh, I've used that book in my American military history course a few times. Highly recommend. Students love it. They, they really devour that. Because oh, they get to thanks. compare, right? They, they get to compare. It's not just about the one thing, but they get to compare. Uh, September Hope, The American Side of a Bridge Too Far, The Dead and Those About to Die, D-Day, The Big Red One at Omaha Beach, and Hell Before Their Very Eyes, American Soldiers Liberate Concentration Camps in Germany, 1945. And that's a really good one. Most recently, John has been writing a trilogy on the war in the Pacific. His first book, Fire and Fortitude, won the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History. It was followed by Island Infernos, the U.S. Army's Pacific War Odyssey, 1944. And in March, I'm sorry, in May of 2023, the final volume will come out to, to the end of the earth, the U.S. Army and the downfall of Japan, 1945. We look forward to that. John's a leading expert on the American Army in the Second World War, among many other things, World War II related. He has appeared on CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, the Military Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel, Netflix, Smithsonian Network, the History Channel, PBS, and he's slumming with us today on this podcast, <laughs> which we're very grateful. John is the host of the American version of the podcast. We have ways of making you talk, so do check that out. John, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks yeah. for having me. I appreciate that amazing introduction, Bill. <laughs> thanks, Brian thanks, wrote man. it, and Brian's with us now. How you doing, man? So all credit to Brian. Um, Thank hey, you. Hey, you know, this, this shows you how sad my life is. I'm in the business center <laughs> of a timeshare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that, wasn't that your unrealized goal? You've always Yeah, exactly. But, um, man, my, I called the maintenance guy over. He said everything was set <laughs> at my place, and then I, got, I went to get on and just nothing. And I'm on Hilton Head Island, so the cell reception out here is absolutely horrible mm -hmm. the business center was like yeah we got you we come on over and i got there this was the cable they had for the internet um so if you have a computer that that is you know more recent than about 1996 you're not going to get that in the back <laughs> so i'm on uh i'm on, on some really bad wi-fi right now so uh well, hope it sticks. You are the reason uh, that we're here today. You know, we, we like to start by having people tell us um, where they're from, tell us what your parents did, you know, what kind of house did you grow up in? And uh, for you specifically, why did you make the change to history after you got a degree in sports mm -hmm. journalism and then flirted with uh, with with a career? In? Yeah, so so I'm from St. Louis. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't born there. I was actually born in Detroit. Uh, my, my father worked for Monsanto. And so, yeah. um, you know, in the years before I was born, uh, the family moved around a pretty decent amount as he was transferred. He was in, he was a salesperson and a marketing person, but uh, Monsanto, as you may know, in, in those days had their headquarters in St. Louis. So uh, a couple of years after I was born, the family moved to St. Louis and that's, you know, where we ended up. Uh, my dad was there the rest of his career, then retired and then took a job with another company in St. Louis as a, as a marketing person. My, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I, I was just so incredibly fortunate to, to grow up in a nice home and in a nice neighborhood uh, to have, you know, decent education. I, I went to the, the University of Missouri uh, because of the journalism school there. And obviously it was, it was cheap too. I mean, it was just yeah. in-state tuition. Uh, it was an hour and 45 minutes away from our house and a fun place to go. And a, a nice contrast, too, from what I had, you know, I had just spent seven years at, at an all-boys school, uh, like a college prep school in St. Louis. And so, you know, I was ready for a co-ed environment. <laughs> and, uh, and so Mizzou had yeah. everything. And, uh, and, you know, and what I really wanted out of a journalism career uh, was a career in sports broadcasting because I'm, I'm kind of a sports fanatic, kind of a get a live sports fan. 
So I, I, I went there and so all, so and, all St. Louis, I assume. Cardinals, yeah, exactly. All that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sort of fanatic for all uh, St. Louis sports and, and I might, my dad was huge into sports. And so we had season tickets to all the different teams and um, you know, so that was a big part of what our lives revolved around. And so I, you know, I wanted a career sort of along those lines, especially in baseball, which um, wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was, my favorite sport to follow, I guess, not necessarily to play, but so at, at Mizzou, you know, the, the, the difficult thing, and I don't know if you guys had this kind of sort of professional crisis in a way um, in, in your college years, I, I quickly came to realize I, I didn't like journalism much at all. And, and, and as, I, as I've admitted, I, mean, I was a lousy journalism student. So what, uh, just, what was it that you didn't like? I, I didn't like um, the sort of immediacy of it in the sense of having to get in someone's face uh, after they've just had an accident or there's been a fire or, you know, or how everything had to be done because I was in the radio TV side. So obviously there was a lot of immediacy to that. Everything had to be done for this deadline. And I thought, well, there's probably more to this, uh, you know, can't we analyze this more, you know, like an historian would, I guess, uh, right. you know, we have decades of lead time sometimes and, and uh, you know, you're lucky to have a few hours in, in broadcast journalism. Uh, I was not particularly adept at the, the, uh, the photography side of the, the equation or anything. And, and I really wasn't interested in being a news reporter type person. I was interested in sports, you know, so you, you could do some of that, but not all. You had to have the larger kind of journalism background, which is good. Right. That's the way the school should be. And it's one of the reasons why I wasn't a good student. So it's, I don't know if you all know uh, Jeremy Collins at the World War II Museum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know Jeremy. I'm working with him now because we're doing the summer seminar. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. You've done the summer seminar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's Jeremy's baby in a way. So yeah. So Jeremy and I have been buddies for years. And the reason I mentioned him is his father, Kent Collins, was a journalism professor at Mizzou. And I was okay. in his classes. So yeah. little did I know when I was a horrendous student in, in Kent Collins's classes that he would that I would one day become buddies with his son. And, uh, you know, and I was almost embarrassed. And then you'd because... be doing stuff at the World War II Museum, right? Exactly. I, I would never right. have conceived of that. Wow. Um, That's nuts. And yet, you know, so here I am just kind of existing as a journalism student and eventually I got the degree and all but I but I took any history course I could and I always did love history but I it just hadn't clicked in my mind yet that that's probably what I'd be doing and I could do a lot of the same things that I would have done in a sports journalism career which is basically talk and write and and read and analyze and and kind of think you know so so I, I took enough history to be kind of a, a minor but I wanted to have the journalism degree and I do think it helped me in the sense that it, it trained me to be a pretty decent communicator and it, it helped yeah. with writing skills in a, in a pretty ruthless environment. I think it helped me become a better writer. So I'm glad we, I did know, it. We've had I am embarrassed people, that I wasn't a better student. We've had a few people on, John, that, that started out in journalism. Yeah. I mean, Heather Sturr mm. did, right? Um, yeah. Mm. I, think, I think maybe Didn't Tammy. Tammy? Yeah. yeah, Tammy, Tammy Proctor did. Yeah. Did. yeah. And actually did it for a bit uh, before going back to school. Mm. Or, or, yeah, well, another, my, my friend James reasons. Scott is a yeah. good example. Yep. James Scott was a, a journalist for many years. Very good one. And transitioned to becoming a story. And it's, it's a natural thing, I guess. Um, in my case, uh, you know, it happened within a year or two that I decided to go just try history grad school and, and just see where that would lead. So I went part time. And I was actually at the time working at a bookstore. So <laughs> that'll shock everybody. I mean, of course, I loved books and loved to be involved with them. And so I was working part time in the bookstore and, and going to, to grad school part time at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And that, that worked out pretty well. And so then I decided to just commit myself to go full time. And that's when I went back to Mizzou and finished up a master's in history there. So why'd you go to Tennessee then? Well, I went to Tennessee because uh, Dr. Charles Johnson, who ended up as my dissertation director and mentor, incredible person. He was spearheading a, a major effort to collect primary sources from World War II veterans. It was called the World War II Veterans Project. And I, I wanted to do that. Uh, I had already done a thesis at, uh, at Mizzou for my master's about American combat soldiers in World War II. I had utilized, uh, really, I think a kind of overlooked uh, collection there of World War II letters from uh, from American uh, service personnel, it was it's many many thousands of letters that are in the uh, uh, what was the Western Historical Manuscript Collection. Now it's the State Historical Society of Missouri Collection. So, 
Um, I, I knew that at Tennessee, there was going to be even way more than that. So I wanted to help Dr. Johnson, and I knew that those would be good sources for the dissertation I envisioned about the American combat soldier in World War II. So it was just one of the most fortuitous things that could have ever happened to end up there doing that, um, but also having him as a, as a mentor, because Dr. Johnson was one of the finest people you'll ever meet, uh, someone who was just, just a, a terrific teacher uh, on a lot of levels. And I look back now and realize that he think more than I think at the time, now that I've taught so long. Um, but he, he was someone who cared deeply and he had such a good feel for the topic, you know, for, for American soldiers in World War II and for how to deal with veterans. And so I learned a lot about that. I, I was very lucky to go there. And probably the timing was right. There were still a lot of veterans still around. Yeah, exactly. We were in the sweet right? spot. Yeah. We were because... This was, you know, 50 years after the end of World War II. So now they were retirement age. You figure if you're 22 during the war or something, now you're in your early to mid 70s or something. And uh, so, yeah, they were they, they were they were done with their careers. They had sort of raised their families and they were active in veterans associations. Many of them were finally ready to talk or were looking for places to deposit their stuff, right. um, you know, because their kids may not have been interested or whatever, or who knows what. And so it really was the sweet spot. And so I, I was fortunate in that I had a lot of like deep immersion experiences, interviewing veterans, collecting material, organizing it, um, you know, just just working on that angle and also dealing with people because I, I was Dr. Johnson's uh, assistant director. So I, I was in charge of a lot of the correspondence with veterans and right. or with their families or, or just other folks as to how do we. So I learned a lot about you know, how, how to keep in touch with people, how to, uh, how to arrange things, uh, you know, how to, how to plan ahead and, and think about projects. And it just, it, I learned more outside of the classroom than in at Tennessee, to be and, honest with you. And, and we should clarify for our younger listeners, when you say correspond with, this is when the internet is bright and shiny and new. So most of those veterans yep. are not sending you emails, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> most of this is most of this is ink and paper letters uh, with the stamps. Pony Express, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, stamps. stamps. And yeah. And I, I I mean, that was a good bit of my typical day is corresponding with people, uh, sending out the letters or we, we'd get, of course, quite a bit of mail and going through it. And, uh, you know, and Dr. Johnson may or may not want to see all of it and having then have the judge what goes to him, what doesn't, where do we file this, where do we put this in the archives or not, or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it was, it was overwhelming at times because in those days it was mainly just the two of us. And that was, it was more work than, than you, than two people could do. And of course he's teaching full-time I'm in grad school, but it was a labor of love too. Yeah. So I was there, you know, just all the time working on this and loving what I was doing I was very so fortunate. How, how did you do your diligence then on the oral histories? Yeah, we so I mean we would tape them with cassettes. I mean that that's how we yeah. did it. And uh so we would save the cassettes, we would document everything that was on there. If there was time we'd have transcription, but there usually wasn't. Right. So sometimes he would he would employ undergrads to do the transcriptions or whatever, but you know, often as not, we were just uh cataloging who got interviewed, when, what unit, what was covered, and then putting it into our archive. We had the special collections literally right down the hall. Um, yeah. So I, I could work very closely with them. So that was the other thing, too, that I, I really got a good sense of how archives work, um, you know, how things are cataloged, how you work with archivists, and, and um, you know, all of that, I think, was, was very useful, too. But it, it, logistically, it was really easy for me to do a dissertation because, I would say two thirds to three quarters of my sources were right down the hall or were interviews that I'd done or whatever. In addition, then later I did one major uh, research trip to Carlisle for right. the World War II questionnaires. And, and that was kind of it in addition to the published primary source literature and all the other stuff that you could get anyway. Could you imagine uh, so, if you had if you had Ed Gaitre still at Virginia Tech? You know, then, oh my gosh. Right. That would be <laughs> see that that's the one thing that would have been way better. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That thing is amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. you know and I used that study, the Stouffer study. Right. Um, which was very, very useful for me. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, to have Ed and and, uh, and that crew would be amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So did you have to get copies of their discharge papers and things like that for the people doing the oral histories or, you know, how did Not you typically 
Yeah. I mean, like I was, I'm thinking like today it would be easy to just get online and you can mm-hmm. figure it out looking at Carlisle or NARA or something like that. You could, you could spot check, right. And make sure everything mm-hmm. is according to Hoyle. But I'd imagine then it had been a little more difficult to do, right? It was more difficult to do. So we, we I think Dr. Johnson, and I both had enough knowledge in a way to vet people yeah, somewhat, right. but, but that was a work in progress for me. I mean, of course he was, you know, way more experienced than I was. And I, I think he had a better antenna for that that was yeah. part of the learning experience for me as a very young graduate student um is to, to figure out what do we what can we corroborate uh, right. do we take things at face value or not are people leading us astray or whatever i do think we were lucky in that we just didn't seem to have a lot of storytellers shall we put it you know people yeah, who are yeah. uh, they were actually quite the opposite most of them very self-effacing and whatever but uh so but but i think it did help that dr johnson and i had a very good feel for military organizations how they're set up, how to document units and and campaign participation, all this kind of stuff that I that because we had the attitude of well, we don't know what military historians are going to be asking or other historians 30, 40, 50, 80 years from now. So let's ask everything we can. Let's document what we can and the chips where they may. It was time consuming, but I think right. it's worth doing. Yeah. And and it's probably, you know, even more challenging because this is, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, we're talking like Band of Brothers, you know, everybody's getting uh, Tom Brokaw's Greatest Generation for Christmas. Like, so all these <laughs> veterans are are doubtlessly influenced and probably a lot of them want to speak because, you know, they know that, that this stuff is out there. But then, you know, of course, as historians, we know that some of the, the kind of experiences that they read about or things they see can kind of bleed into their own uh, experiences. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's tough, but uh, glad that stuff all got recorded. So did you have a plan then? Did you go into this thinking, okay, I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to teach somewhere. What am mm-hmm. I going to do? Yeah. I had, had these big, big grand ambitions. You know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to write books and, and yeah. uh, lots of books that would be read, not just by a few scholars, but would be read by a large audience. Um, I wanted to score that that, and that's I'm very, very (laughs) pleased and fortunate the way that that worked out on on one level was a little pragmatic in the sense that, you know, I mean, you guys know this every time you hear in grad school. Oh, well, you know, it's going to be tough to find jobs. It's going to be this. And I thought, well, it would be good to have some sort of outside income source. Yeah. Uh, and to, to have an, an audience of people who are aware of your work, that can't be anything but good. But no, I mean, I wanted to have an academic career with teaching, uh, you know, alongside research in a tenure track situation. And I, I knew that'd be easier said than done, especially being a military historian in, at, right. a, at a civilian university or whatever. But but again, I think that I was prepared pretty well at Tennessee to be competitive in that respect. I had very good teaching opportunities. I, I, I was never a TA because I was always working. My graduate assistantship was working at the center, um, which was great in the sense that I could be there indefinitely, unlike most TAs that are t- terminal, you know, but also it didn't give me that built-in teaching experience, but that didn't matter because uh, eventually I had plenty of opportunities to just teach my own courses rather than TA for somebody else. Yeah. Uh, so this gave me a really nice blend of experience. And then, you know, as I said, I was very committed to, to writing and publishing books that would generate an audience. Um, and I, I, I do think that that helped. Uh, so that it gave me that kind of double skill set in that respect to see too how your research can come into the classroom and sure. and 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 you know and also too I'm sure you guys have found this that uh, students the things they ask the things they're interested in that can that can help guide your own research too. Um, their curiosity and questions. And I, I learned that early on. It, that was a really fun part of this. And it's still same thing all these years later. So was Missouri S&T, was that the first first stop? Well, technically not, but but it might as well have been. Um, okay. I, I was teaching at UT. <laughs> I was teaching at a local community college in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I moved back to St. Louis and not because of me, but her. My, my wife, Nancy, is an audiologist, and she got a, a great opportunity in St. Louis. Uh, and I thought, well, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love to live in my hometown, too, and then see what happens job-wise. And so that's when I began teaching part-time at s and okay. which then became a, a full-time tenure track over the, the course of several years. So I had to, to kind of get my foot in the door just teaching a class or two and kind of earning more as as we'd go along and what had happened 
there is their military historian um, had died, I think, even before he could retire. And that was several years before I got there. Mm -hmm. So they had a couple of classes on the books and they were a, a department that I think at least valued having a military historian. And so, I, again, that's where I think publishing well-received books early on really helped me because that's what they wanted in in whatever scholar they were going to hire. And if I could teach successfully there, too, that, that really did help. So that so really, Missouri S&T almost has kind of been my only stop in a way. I've been there 22 yeah. years now. Right. And I, I, again, I, I think I'm really lucky to have been there. So you've written so much on World War II and, and are still writing on World War II, especially the soldier experience, the combat experience. You know, you've been at it, for, like you just said, for a while now, you know, for 20-something years. Think about when you first started the questions you were asking as a historian. Has Have those changed over the years? Mm. How, how have they changed? Yeah, they have. And I, I, I almost look back at, at myself as a, a PhD student or, you know, early on 20-some-odd years ago and think right. I was almost a little too myopic. As much as, yes, I'm a soldier's historian. Uh, I'm a grunt's historian. And that I don't know that I'll ever really change. I don't necessarily want it to change. But I, I'm a lot more interested now in senior level leadership, um, in, you know, in, in generalship, in, in colonelship, in, in uh, all of those factors. And I, I want, I, I don't know why, maybe it's because I'm older now and have been in a position of being a senior leader on our campus kind of thing. And so you just relate to it as an older person, maybe. I don't know. But I see it now um, as a much more important topic than I did all those years ago when I was like, I don't care much about anybody above sergeant almost, you know, I'm exaggerating, but you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, so yes, I asked different questions about uh, leadership, about organization, about culture. And I, and I mean, culture of an organization and how that fits personality of leadership, which I think is so vital. Um, and that could be at the small unit level, if we're part of a fire team or a squad, or it could be at army level, you know, or core level, whatever. I think I see that as tremendously impactful. And I, I'm more interested in organizations now. And that's, so I've done this uh, series about the army in the Pacific. So to some extent, the focus of the, the trilogy is about the army as an organization, the army in the Pacific, and, and how that impacts the war and what that means on a lot of different levels, what it says about the U.S. at that time and, and uh, you know, and, and Japan, too, for that matter. You know, so I, I, I don't think I would have had that kind of bigger picture view, you know, a couple of three decades ago. That part, I think, has changed. You know, I have this impression, John, of, of the army, both in Europe and the Pacific. Beginning of the war, you know, as, as well prepared as we were compared to 1917, we were still scrambling, right? We're, we're reacting. We're, we're, we're like, you know, the little Dutch, the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. We're trying to, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> but then everything starts kicking in. Then the production starts kicking in. And then the logistical chain starts kicking in. And you get to 43, 44, and suddenly you're in this unprecedented historical moment of, of truly like corporate warfare, Mm -hmm. I, is that a fair take on it? I mean, that's just my impression of it. No, I think it, I think it's dead on because I, what I often say is that the army of that era had enough professionals to be an excellent army and fulfill the mission, but it was not so professional uh, as to be racked by careerism and sapped by it, which yeah. you're going to see a little bit of generation later in Vietnam, though yeah, I think it's a bit overblown, that. but I do yeah. think it's it's a problem. It's there, yeah, absolutely. It's there because when yeah. you're rotating officers out of the field after six months, like they did in Vietnam, that can be an issue because, you know, they're punching their ticket for, for promotion. You don't see well, that. that was the whole World point in Vietnam of the six, the six months in the field, six months. Well, admin, right. What, what they said, the point of it was they wanted a, a combat experienced officer corps. And that made some sense too, yeah. of course, and but it's the only war they it, had. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right? But if <laughs> the three of us are in a platoon that's led by a really good Lieutenant, Who's going? Whose excellence is going to help us survive our tour? I don't think we really like the idea that that guy is going to be rotated out for some brand new butter bar right. uh, when we're <laughs> when we're approaching month eight or nine of our tours. Uh, we don't really want to hear that the other guy needs experience too. Uh, right. As long as our original guy can survive, and that's a big if, of course, too. Yeah. As long as he can, we want him there. And, and in World War II, that's how it operated. Um, yeah. And 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 so World War II. I think in retrospect is atypical 
Um, because I think in the 21st century, it was much the same way too. It's like, oh, well, you know, school is uh, is beginning for the students. So we're going to have to rotate commanders in June or, you know, all this kind of, it's like this right. peacetime mentality. And and it's, <laughs> this was unfathomable to me and especially like writing grunts. Like, wait a minute, you know, people's lives are on the line here. I mean, it, it, shouldn't yeah. we get away from the usual rotation system? And and so I think that that makes us look back at the World War II Army and, and see it maybe a little bit differently in that respect. Yeah. Bureaucracies are hard to change. Yeah. Hey, sure. I, I want to ask you real quick, you know, one of the things that's so impressive is, you know, not only the quality of what you write, but the quantity. I mean, do you have like, you know, I've talked to Michael Nyberg and I think, you know, he jokes and he's like, oh, I write, you know, 10,000 words a day or whatever it is. <laughs> you Are you the kind of like, do you get up in the morning and say, I'm writing X number of words a day or do you just kind of like write whenever it happens? I'm the kind of person that I don't necessarily put a word count on it. I, I, I would be reluctant to do that, but it's more like, okay, I've got to cover this. Now that could mean 200 words. It could mean 2000. It could mean five. I mean, I don't know, but I've got to cover this. I want to be able to tell this part of the story today, work this out. And, uh, you know, that just kind of that really varies. So I, I'm amazed at, um, because I know a lot of people who say I'm going to write a certain number of words a day. Yeah. I just don't see how that's doable in a way yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think you're, you're setting yourself up for not failure. That wouldn't be the right word, but disappointment. I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah. uh, but it isn't really about, to me, it really isn't about the how many words are on the page. It's about how well the story is told, how accurately and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. A big part of what occupies my time writing, in fact, the majority of it, I would say, is what a filmmaker would recognize as like setting up the shot. In mm -hmm. other words, you spend 80% of your time setting up the shot and 20% actually shooting, you know, you know, whatever your movie is or something. Same deal here. It's like, setting up all the sources, figuring out how we're going to go about, say, talking about this part of the, the Battle of Macon or something, um, or this person in it or whatever I've decided needs to be told, make sure we've got all the sources there, make sure it's organized in, in terms of how we're going to tell the story, see it flow from the page, check on it as we're going, you know, all that kind of stuff isn't really the writing. It's, it's the setup for it. It's a good problem to have, I think, because it comes from having a lot of source material. And I think as modern military historians, that's our, uh, our nice blessing to not a curse because a lot of my colleagues cover the medieval period or whatever earlier, man. No, for us, yeah, it's like, what, I, what I like do we leave this. out, right? It's like, what do we leave out? Oh yeah, absolutely. Times, right? That's the hard Ooh. part. The, when you have to get to the point of saying, you know what, um, this is interesting, but not necessarily relevant. And like, what's right. a rabbit hole and what, is it, what isn't? That's a hard right. decision sometimes. Right. Yeah. Brian, should we take our little faux break? Yeah, let's take a faux break. Okay. So, John, you are, you're an academic with a distinguished professorship. But uh, you've had great success, tremendous success uh, writing for the public. And for you, this is a two-part question. Um, first off, what does writing for the public mean for you? And with so many books on World War II hitting the market every year, how do you distinguish yourself? Yeah, I mean, what does it mean to me? Uh, to me, this is the whole existential purpose of what we do, um, that at least, you know, we're talking about military history here, it has to have an application, a usage, a, an impact. I mean, whatever we would call it. Um, I, I've just never been comfortable with the idea of doing something so deeply scholarly that would only appeal to a few people here and there, a few, right. you know, esoteric folks. Um, but also to me, I guess this history has always been about communication um, and engagement and, and understanding that, that history is truly the humanities, which means it's for everybody. And uh, I think that that's how history should be done. Uh, and it's it's one of the things that I, among many things I love about doing this, is hearing from people. 
um, you know, for well or ill about your work, you know, that that's the ultimate feedback, I think, but to see how it can impact them. And, and what I mean by that, a lot of times it's, I hear from family members of people I wrote about or people who were in a battle I talked about or whatever. And, you know, that, that maybe um, something I've written might enhance their understanding a little bit or, or elicit some curiosity to explore it themselves or, or get someone in the family to talk or whatever it is. I just think that that is so extraordinarily valuable. Um, and I also, you know, I'm still naive enough, even in my cynical old age now, to think that more, the more we know about war, um, maybe the better chance of preventing it somehow. But I also think it's just all to the good, you know, regardless of whether we prevent it or not. So, um, yeah. So the, the, what was the second part again? I apologize. So with, you know, you write on a, a very, very popular subject, Second World War. And so mm. there are literally thousands of books on the Second World War being put out every year. So you've and, and the reason I ask you, how do you distinguish yourself is because you have, you know, you are writing books that are that are being read more often than than the others. So, you know, do you do you think about the fact that you're writing um, that the competition is so stiff or do you just go at it saying, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if people like it, fine. If not, that's fine. Mostly the latter. I mean, I, th I just think we all have to do it that way. Um, you've got to be yourself. Uh, but I, I really think in terms of distinguishing yourself, it's trying to find and relate something that's original. And, and I think a lot of people look at World War II and their tendency to say, oh my God, so much has been done. What more? Yeah. But no, that's the amazing thing about it. There's always new aspects of World War II, new material or new interpretation because as our, our history continues to unfold, the way we look at World War II can change, you know? And and uh, so right. I, I do think that there's always that. Um, and But I also think that the originality comes from the research so that a, a reader can say, well, okay, this, this person has a very good grasp, uh, is on the cutting edge of whatever he or she is talking about here. Uh, and that's what I want to read. You know, that that's what I'm going to cut through the maw here versus reading books that just recapitulate what's already out there, which I think is extraordinarily boring anyway. Yeah. Um, and so I think that and I also think just writing well enough to engage. And that's the fun part, too, because we all do it differently. Uh, we yeah. all have our own style, our own voice or whatever. And, and I think that's what I mean about just kind of doing your own thing. That to me is you find that voice, you find that engagement. And, and just over time, you kind of build an audience uh, of people who sort of like how you approach it. And, and I think it, it's not the kind of thing that can be done overnight, at least in 99% of cases. It, it yeah. takes years and several books and awareness and all that. I, I just, so I, no, I, I plan to just continue that way, not necessarily, you know, approaching topics the same way or whatever, but uh, hopefully writing well enough to, to engage people to generate that kind of readership. You know, I think uh, people aren't going to be able to see you other than our screenshots that we post, but uh, it's, you know, I, I haven't looked at your rate by professors, but I, I, I'm willing to bet your students like you because even with you talking to us right now, when you're talking about stuff, you're smiling like you after your 20 something <laughs> years you're kind of giddy about talking about <laughs> it. Is. It's, I know. it's, I get so excited about this that I, I mean, it, it's I, my passion level is, it never really abates. And I, I think because of that, I'm so lucky. But yeah, I mean, my, my students have put up with me this long. So I like my chances for survival, I guess. You know, I just think I have a big advantage because what I teach is just so incredibly fascinating and so relevant. It's, I think it's tougher. If I'm trying to tell you about Alexander the Great, or I'm trying to tell you about uh, something medieval that that a 20 year old isn't going to be able to really wrap their mind around, unless you're really good at that, um, like, and, Kelly and people are. like Kelly DeVries, like Kelly DeVries, yeah, like Kelly DeVries, yeah. exactly. Kelly and, and there are, and that's what I'm saying. I think they're yep. far better than I am. You know, yeah. I think I've got an intrinsic advantage, especially being an Americanist teaching mainly American students, that they can see the relevance of. World War II or the Vietnam War or American military history ranging into the 21st century, or I think it's profoundly impactful. And, and so I think I'd have to be just a complete idiot to screw it up, I think, you know, to, to not generate that interest. And, you know, I, I just take it for what it is, which I think is fascinating on its face, and then hopefully stand aside and not screw it up too badly and expose them. And the other thing, too, that I think does work with students, and this is what I would have liked to have had more 
as a student myself, is professors who try and present the material as objectively as you can. And that's, Mm -hmm. of course, it's easier said than done, of course. We all have our biases. The bias is usually in the emphasis sometimes. What I might choose to emphasize and you guys not or vice versa, you know. But in the end, I think it's all about getting them to think and and getting them to to want lifelong learning and explore things themselves. And so I'll, I'll expose them to different points of view um, and then kind of to say, okay, well, what you're doing this semester, just kind of decide what you think by the end. And then there may or may not be a right or wrong answer, you know, you know, in, in that respect. So I think that's fun for students and maybe a little eye-opening because at the high school level, a lot of times it's just about memorizing and spitting the info back. Right. Wow, this is about growing as a human being. <clears throat> well, speaking of idiots, we we've we have proven that any idiot can do a podcast. As have um, I. <laughs> well, we, you know, as a fellow idiot podcasting, you've been you've taken on the American version of we have ways of making you talk. And, and of course, you know, thousands of followers and, and the European version, same thing. Very popular. Uh, we were talking earlier about the, the we have ways festival that you attended in the UK. One, you know, how did you get tapped into this? And, you know, what, what's what's been your learning curve? You know, what what mm. what have you learned about doing a podcast? Yeah, um, because we 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 want we need help. Yeah, we need help. <laughs> we need help. <laughs> so do I. So I'm not ready for advice, but uh, yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't even get the Wi-Fi to stay. Yeah, safe. we can't get the Wi-Fi to work. Man. So. <laughs> That's hard to do nowadays in some places, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've been again, like a lot of things, very very fortunate because James and Al, uh, James Holland and Al Murray have really done the hard work creating that podcast, setting it up, building the audience. And now I'm just piggybacking on what they've done Uh, in terms of how it all came about. Well, James and I met each other for the first time three, about three and a half years ago at um, the the World War II Museum had a uh, 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion uh, tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, James and I were were fellow historians on that tour. And uh, we really, really hit it off. He's just such a neat guy, and I, I admire him on so many levels. Talk about an incredible communicator and an and engager of history and writer and passion and all that, and just, just a good person. Um, so then we also, a few months later, had the opportunity to do another tour together in the, in the fall. So we got to know each other a little more and, and then develop a relationship. And I think over time, at least from what James and Alla told me, I think they, they wanted to kind of expand their audience because most of the uh, the podcast audience tended to be in Britain, I think to the tune of 70, 80% or something like that. I Brian, what, what he's numbers. talking about is hashtag empire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they want to expand their empire. That's, that's what they were doing. <laughs> right, exactly. So, <laughs> so where else better to go but the USA? And uh, so they, they wanted to, to hook up with a, uh, you know, primarily American-oriented historian for that. You know, again, I'm very fortunate they, they reached out to me for that because I love the idea. Because uh, again, another educational platform it's just fun to do. I guess it, it for me, it, um, it, it scratches the old broadcast itch too. Um, I was going to ask you. Yeah, that's yeah. what we were thinking. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I, I always liked the actual broadcasting itself. I didn't like all the, the journalism stuff or the, you know, the, the photography, all that kind of stuff. I liked talking. Um, I mean, I think you guys can relate to that. It's That's yep. probably what got you into the history side too it's like gosh i can actually talk maybe somebody will listen to what i have to say for once maybe not to their benefit but they they might you know so so i i I enjoy that and i I think it's it's a good you know sort of a good alliance just like the original alliance uh, between the u.s and britain and and world war ii i also do another podcast called someone talked um which uh, i put together with the national d-day memorial folks who are incredible people by the way and if 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 you guys i don't know if you had a chance to visit the d-day memorial in bedford virginia yes i i I was telling you earlier john in my drive back and forth from carlisle to spartanburg i stopped there a couple of times oh have you it was really a neat place to to visit yeah first rate yep and just wonderful people and so I came to them with the idea. This was before We Have Ways USA. This was uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, for the idea of a podcast that we could host together. And so in that podcast, our focus is mainly on uh, uh, authors, you know, somebody who's got a new book or whatever uh, who we host. And and, uh, we usually do it in two episodes or whatever. And so that's a lot of fun, too. So it's kind of fun because someone talked, 
it's uh it's more of an interview q a format and as you've heard with we have ways usa it's a conversational thing among the three of us as if we're kind of sitting in a pub just just kind of uh talking over these various aspects of world war ii which we all do from time to time so i think that's fun well you're doing great work man we, we i don't speak too much for brian but i think brian would agree you know we kind of fell into this and we've just really enjoyed just talking to people about what they you know who they are where they came from how they got into this you know like your story going from sports journalism right to the and, and now you're almost kind of doing a first full circle coming back to you know yeah. voice right mm-hmm. your voice and to tell stories and i don't know it's been really rewarding we, we've really enjoyed it and you know we want to keep doing it and of course we, we still find idiots who will talk to us yeah. Yeah. so <laughs> you know so so thank you um, my kids asked me today uh, you know i told them i said you got to get out of here so i can do the podcast they're like do you get paid for doing that and i was like no and they said well then why do you do it and i said i like it mm-hmm. <laughs> i enjoy doing it <laughs> one, one day we'll, fi- we'll figure it. out the monetization part yeah. we'll figure it out but well, right now and then that that can happen over time and that's yeah. the beauty of it too yeah but it, you're also the other thing too it's i mean I don't know if you guys have found this too, but you're just sort of developing professionally too, as you do this. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. yeah. Just the nature of it. Right. Yeah. Well, right. And, and I, that's, that's the other thing we're, we're struggling with a little bit is how do we present this? Not that we need to, but you know, for the university administration, for our annual faculty mm-hmm. evaluations, you know, we think this is actually pretty important and is having an impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now the, in, the impact is anecdotal. Right. People telling us, you know, how what what they enjoyed and what they got out of it. We think it matters. And it's just, just what you said. Professionally, we think this matters. Oh, yeah. I think it does, too. And, and it's raising getting, the profile of the university, too. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, how do we I don't know. How do we turn that into cold, hard Georgia Southern cred, Brian? We got right. Yeah, I know. And, you know, the thing we've got 50 some odd people now that that we know fairly well as a result of, of the podcast that, you know, in the future, uh, you know, we may need to, to reach out and say, um, you know, Hey, we've got students that want to do internships, you know, X, right. Y, whatever. I mean, I think right. it's, uh, it, it, it's just a good way to get in touch with people, learn about people and, and build those, those connections. So, uh, no, it's been a blast. Um, yeah, it is. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yes. let's let's do a rapid fire, Brian. John, this is uh-oh. yeah, no, uh oh, you dang right, man. Did I have my um, IBA on? Uh, yeah, that's know. right. Ten, <laughs> get my Kevlar. And... <laughs> ten, ten questions. Uh, Brian, I'll ask you a couple. I'll ask a couple. You know, answer as quick as you can. We may comment. We, we may judge a little, but uh, the idea is just to get you know, uh-oh. get to know you a little, little better here. So, Brian, go. All right. What are you reading for pleasure right now? Preferably not history. Oh, let's see. What am I reading for? Play? Oh, you know, I just finished a uh, a biography of Bo Jackson. I don't oh, know if you guys have seen this book. Uh, it's by Jeff yeah. Perlman. It's a brand new book about Bo Jackson. It was fascinating. Okay, I, I actually I do want to see that one. I think that'd be really interesting. It's worth it. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, best work of history you've recently read? Oh boy, man, that's tough. <laughs> I'm I'm sure people always hesitate with this one. They do, and they usually look around at yeah. the bookshelves. And I should, so I don't forget anything because it's there's so much incredible work right now that people are doing. It's kind of humbling. Um, yeah. I, and I, I apologize because I don't remember the name of the author, but uh, a remarkable work that I, I just read was a, a biography of Walter White, uh, who was the uh, the head of the NAACP, like uh, in the 20s through the through part of the I think the 40s, early 50s, and it's just such a fascinating sort of journey through um, American history in that era through the prism of race, uh, which is so profoundly impactful. Uh, and the book was beautifully researched, well-written, so engaging. Uh, and um, I think- Well, probably dovetails pretty good with integration of the military and you know, those exactly. World War II commissions. And, yeah. It does. Yeah. So that, that interests me as well. Yeah. yeah it's really well done. Okay, you get to listen to one band or singer for the rest of your life. That's it. Who is it? Well, it would have to be U2 because I'm a huge U2 fan, um, big Bono fan. Uh, a little concerned about Larry Mullen's health situation. Yeah. Uh, and he may not be part of things next year or in 2023. I won't say next year because this will air in 2023. But uh, 
Yeah, I've been a huge U2 fan. So I'm su- I assume you've seen them several times. I've seen them more times than I can count. Um, yeah, wow. But it's been a while. It's been about four years. So. Right. Right. And and there, the, I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen them, but the live, that's yeah, there well, they're amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I think I think that's our first U2 shout out, Brian. Really? We started asking. Yeah, this. it is. Wow. It is. So U2 yeah. played, played uh, I'm from around Clemson, South Carolina, and U2 played uh, Death Valley. They came into town and uh, went out to where Clemson's on Lake Hartwell, big, huge lake, and they wanted to spend the day on the lake and uh, went out and there were no boats available to rent. So they just walked down the end of the dock. And uh, my cousin, uh, her, they were out there on her, her boyfriend's parents' houseboat. And you two just said, hey, you guys want to take us around the lake? So my cousin got to, and they gave them uh, like backstage passes and tickets and everything. But they got to take you two around the lake. And, you know, it's like that only happens to to people like my cousin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Your cousin ends up in these sort of Forrest Gump situations. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's hilarious. That's so cool. That's cool. Okay, John, what are you binge watching? I don't really binge watch that much, but uh, I just finished a, a series about uh, FIFA. It was on Netflix. Oh, um, yeah. It was yeah, about yeah. FIFA's incredible corruption. Uh, and as a soccer fan, I, I found that very interesting. Yeah, really uplifting. Yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah that was very cool. uplifting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, um, uh, but, you know, so I, it's, I don't know. It's funny because I don't necessarily have the patience to, to binge watch. Uh, you know, I maybe have enough, you know, patience to sit down for one or two episodes of something. And then I always think I need to be getting something done or whatever. Yeah. I, I shouldn't be that way. But, yeah, but it, so there, that was four episodes, and that was plenty for me, and I really did enjoy it. Do you? Watch, I, I assume you watched the final yesterday. I did, and I loved it. I mean, that was, was amazing. amazing. I thought it was one amazing. of the most amazing matches I've ever seen. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible. Yeah. I, I had no dog in that fight, but I wanted Messi to get that that World Cup. Yeah. Um, so I was happy that it it worked out that way. I was too. I you know it was like I wish they both could win because yeah. I, I liked them both and. Yeah, but it was just yeah, I'm very happy for Messi. I yeah. was crushed when Giroud when they took Giroud out. Um I was too. Because yeah, I, I didn't really quite I, get that. I'm a fan. I mean, I, I like him. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, the, the meaty French forehead of Olivier Giroud, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he was, he was magical with it. And, and I was like, very gallant. They, they were all it was yeah. amazing. That was an amazing match. Great game. All right. What was your first car? Uh my first car was a Buick Skylark. Yes. You remember that those that cars? Yeah. Great first car. Yeah. It was a really good car. I, I liked it a lot. It got v- good vinyl, gas mileage. Vinyl or velour interior? Uh, I think it was the velour. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. Good. It got good gas mileage. It was fun to drive. It was red, which is my favorite color. Yeah, it was awesome. All right. Here's here's a St. <laughs> Louis question for you. Toasted ravioli, yes or no? Oh, for sure, yes. I mean, toasted ravioli. If you guys haven't had toasted ravioli, you need to come to St. Louis. I'll take you to whatever restaurant you want to go to to get it. It's it's just awesome. All right. I mean, maybe not good for you, but you know, so what? It's it's awesome. Okay, I'm going to ask you this in two parts. One, what's your favorite World War II film? Like your go-to? What's you know, if it's on, you'll watch it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be the ultimate cliche, but uh, Saving Private Ryan. I, okay. I think it's brilliant on so many levels. Of course, we could sit here from now until this time tomorrow. I could point out inaccuracies. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. Most of which are very minute and minor. And that's the key because we all hate inaccuracies in a movie. That's why no one wants to see movies with us historians, right? But uh, I just think there wasn't, I, I think it was a sort of game changing movie in terms of how combat was portrayed, how combat soldiers sure. are portrayed. Artistry of it is amazing um but also the impact we, we can't look past that uh yeah. i've saw it with with my work and career the the interest oh, that yeah. it generated the scholarship it generated and I, I think that that matters a lot so it's a film that i use in class and and i don't and by the way like if i show a snippet i don't show the like the real famous part the beach yeah. part or whatever yeah. i think that the normandy town fighting in some ways is the most compelling and if we're thinking about like the Battle of Normandy and and the kind of terrain you're deployed on and the way it might have been fought, Hollywood... oh, it's like it's like Band of Brothers. You know, when they take out the, uh, the when they're fighting in the hedgerows. Yeah, right. It is. That, I think that, that sequence is actually those are well done. Really, yeah, really and, well and, done. and like you know, and, and that's another good point too, Bill. Because yeah, I mean the Braycourt Manor scenes, 
there's a number of things we could parse on and say, yeah. not quite that way or whatever. But in terms of how it was was done, in terms of how the assault is done, how the, how the actors are trained to do this, the the attention to detail for weaponry and and uh, and scale, uh, and, and all of those kinds of things, I think is just exceptional. And Band of Brothers was clearly influenced by Saving Private Ryan. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so, so yeah, I use it. So let me flip the question around on you a little bit then. So what 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 World War II film is for you the most entertaining? Like like I'm thinking like you know for me it's like Kelly's Heroes, Where Where Eagles mm. Dare, right? Broadsword calling Danny Boy, stuff like that. What 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 do you find the most entertaining? Oh my gosh, it's just so hard to to point to one. Um, sure, man. Like I'll watch Casablanca when it's ever, ever it's on. Of course, if it's if it's on I mean, time classics would. and it's halfway, I'm I'm in. I don't care where it's at, right? I mean, in some ways, Memphis Bell is that yeah. for me. And oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, it's yep. just amazing on a lot of levels. It, yeah. um the, the acting and the fact that they still had b-17s that they were flying then and right i mean that that's you know in terms of entertaining yeah yeah i mean there's there's a number of things that i would dissent from it you know whatever but overall i think it's a strong film um but i'd, I'd also in terms of entertaining as long as we have we're thinking about that yeah, yeah absolutely i'll go beyond world war ii and point to a film that is about vietnam that i think is one of the most entertaining and one of the funniest movies I've ever seen is Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Um, have you oh guys my seen gosh. it? Yeah, yeah. It yes. incredible on so many levels. I'm I'm with <laughs> and you. 100% I love the movie there. and I could never turn it off if it's on. Yep. It's just so if we're talking entertaining, that's probably my number one entertaining military history film. But if World War II, Memphis Bell, at least that I could think of right now, there's probably three dozen others too. That oh yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, it's an unfair question for, for someone like you. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. This is a question I sometimes ask my students in my military history course. And Brian, you might address it a little bit when you do yeah. World War II. I'll have them write a little a real brief essay. If you had your choice, would you be in the European theater or the Pacific theater? Definitely the European theater, especially after having studied the Pacific theater and the depth I have now. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to be there. It's, yeah. I mean, just just existing there not is doing anything i mean i yeah, wouldn't yeah. want to be well just nothing i mean there's nothing there europe. yeah it's just yeah. right and i mean the pacific war is an interspecies war in many respects um just to exist you have to control the insects and all the other critters and all that much less the climate much less lack of infrastructure and all that so typically if we're talking eto versus pto i'd rather be in the eto you know because i'm likely to be in a place that has some level of infrastructure with at least maybe maybe there's a bar i can go to or you know maybe i can yeah. forage for food better than i can on guadalcanal or something you know so yeah i, I would prefer the eto plus two in terms of we're talking about the combat i'm at least fighting an enemy there that might be persuaded to give up yeah possibly um, and, and, you know, then, and it's going to kind of ease up at some point or that if they capture me, that maybe I have an okay chance of surviving and it's not going to be good, not going to be pleasant, but I'll probably have a life ahead that isn't too terribly scarred and distorted versus Pacific theater where 37% of American POWs of the Japanese don't survive. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like you, you think about that time, the average GI I don't know, being, you know, 22, 24, 20, whatever years old, wherever they're from in the States, liberal Kansas, whatever. What do they know about the Pacific, right? Very little. Yeah, I mean, they probably little. know yep. at least a little bit about Europe. There's some familiar, but the, but the Pacific mm -hmm. is like another planet it that is. they know nothing about. Yeah. Yep. Right. It must Peter Shrivers wrote about that really Totally, well. be, you know, bewildering to, to, to be there. It is. Dropped into yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd have no reference point. Right. And, and most of the places you never would have heard of, Vela La Vela, maybe, or yeah. Luna, or, or places in the Philippines, whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, another movie I like a lot that I watch, uh, In Harm's Way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is about that film, but I'll watch it every time. Yeah. Uh, it's, watch well, it's a and good not film. Not because I'm a huge John Wayne fan, or, but it's just, it's a compelling story. It is. Yeah, it's know. well told. Yeah. It's well and I'm not a John Wayne fan at all. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I'd sit through it too. Yeah. All right. Tough question here. And this is because you have your fingers in so many pots, media, writing, 
Have you considered ever considered leaving academia? No, not really, because I love it. Uh, I okay. I like the whole academic, the rhythm of academic life. Uh, I like how we have, I mean, I think one of the reasons why these jobs are so sought after is there's so much flexibility. Um, you can yeah. you can kind of have your own schedule. And that's one of the things that I, that I learned early on straight out of college is that I, I couldn't work like in a nine to five setting where somebody else has the clock and you're having to go and put in your time and all that. It, and it, I'm, I'm more of a self-starter. And so I don't want that kind of confining environment of working in a in someone else's time or whatever. I, I I love having to call my own shots and and make the best of my own time and be a self starter and and the academic world really allows you to do that on a lot and of that's levels. That's knowing that your that. hours per week will surpass yeah. anybody's for sure. And yeah. I, and I like and it that's that what way. people misunderstand about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. They you think know, you're just screwing around all summer yeah. or something. Yeah, you know, my neighbor is like, "Oh, you're back here Thursday. What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm." working my ass off back here, man. Absolutely. What are you doing? You know, so. Right. What do you, exactly. And that's, there's so many people who don't get that because that's not their reality. Yeah. That's uh, my own But idea. I think, and I, you know what? I, I think, I don't know if you guys have found this, but I, almost every successful academic I know are, are people who, you know, put in more hours because they manage their own time and they're right. self-starters yeah. and they're doing yeah. whatever, not because someone told them to, because this is what they want and what they love and right. and right. so i i don't know that, that there's any other place that allows that so that, i mean the the time i'd leave the academic world in a way would just be retiring from teaching but to continue to do writing and all the rest of it but i'm not eager to, to step away from teaching either because i i think it's really an enjoyable thing and I, I like i think i like to think that maybe we have a little impact on the lives of younger people and that maybe that's a good thing them going forward who knows i hope all right the uh the final question everyone gets um bill is a a man from texas he likes his uh his brisket uh i'm from upstate south carolina so i prefer pork barbecue so mm. for you what's it come down to is it pork or is it brisket i think it's more brisket uh oh. not that i don't like pork but it, it hasn't always agreed with st louis that, man ribs right yeah i know yep. Yeah, so, Bill, you, got, so I have to be, you got four people now that like. I brisket. think I've got four out of the fifty, whatever we've done. But yeah. <laughs> well, so, so you're in the lead, Brian. I mean, I, I know that this barbecue thing is like a, a sort of a civil warish kind of barrier. I know yeah. I've gathered that from from a lot of folks I know, especially when I was at Tennessee. But I, you know, just it's nothing against the pork side. I like it, but it doesn't always agree with me. So I have to be careful there. So that's that's the only that's the biggest reason I'd go. We're for. the same way. We 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 both yeah. enjoy the other tremendously so it's, what um is any any place that around you where you live in missouri that you want to give a shout out to any barbecue joints um gosh, not i mean nothing because it, it wouldn't even compare to the one you guys go to uh i mean st louis is a great restaurant town but the barbecue is not the biggest thing but i, I would say that there's one place called uh pappy's called Pappy's Barbecue. It's uh, it's in the city of St. Louis itself. It's kind of east of the St. Louis University campus. It's pretty darn good. And then and then it's kind of alongside another restaurant called Southern, which I actually prefer to, to Pappy's, um, which also has, you know, kind of similar fare, but but different entrees, I guess, I guess we would say. And they're both really good. Yeah. But uh, but you know, compared to to a lot of what you'd get in in Texas or South or North Carolina, it, it wouldn't be quite the same um we've got we've got a really good diversity of restaurants here uh, it's an amazing restaurant town but it, i think that um first among equals are the, the italian restaurants here especially in a, in a part of st louis called the hill because uh, oh, yeah. there's so many italian americans who, right. who came to yeah. st louis and it's just it really is amazing brian isn't carol our department chair isn't she from St. Louis. I know her dad's in St. Louis, but it, she, she is from St. From, Louis. Right? Yeah. And her father was the, um, Oh yeah. The cartoonist, uh, for, the the cartoonist for the St. Louis dispatch for his entire oh, Amity. Um, well, his name was, uh, what is Carol's, um, name? Inglehart. Inglehart. Inglehart was his name, but she's, and so he, and he's, he's in his nineties now. I mean, this has been mm. a long yeah. time ago, yeah. but, uh, yeah, she's, she's in St. Louis right now. So shout out Carol. Yeah. Hmm. John, thanks, man. This wow, this was this was great. This yeah, I knew it was going to be a good one, but this it was a lot was, of fun. No, this was fun, and, and we we really appreciate you you're, you're taking the time, especially during the holidays here and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sure. Um, we, we, I appreciate you thinking of me. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. And good luck with the with the new book coming out. 
in May. Look forward to that. And uh, to the end I of the earth. I still say grunts. I, I that's that's such a good book, man. It, I appreciate it, it. I go to that time and time again. Um, it's for the for my American military history class. It's just a good, and I can I can parse it out, you know, across a few weeks mm-hmm. and hit hit a bunch of different things. And it's boy, it, it was, was it was my time. ultimate labor of love. It was yeah. like researching for twelve to fourteen different books and trying to put yep. that all into one book in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it was, absolutely. It was just a totally absorbing experience, and, it, and, I, and I'm really glad I did it. I, yeah, well, well done on that. So, thanks. Well, look, man, happy holidays. Thanks for doing this, and, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch. I think the Brian, I think the new koozies are coming tomorrow. So, oh, excellent. Okay, we'll get you a little bit of swag get and, you and mail to you, John. So, okay, cool. We'll, we'll, All yeah, right. thanks, guys. So, Appreciate it. It's, it's our cheap swag. All right, man. Take All care, right, John. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Take care. folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Military Historians or People Too. Brian heads up the research department and our social media division, and Bill heads up production, editing, and music. We're not monetized, and we depend upon you, dear listener, to help us spread the word about this podcast. So tell your friends, share on social media, listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and wherever the heck you get your podcast. If you need an idea for your class, make them listen to military historians of people too. Give them some extra credit. Thanks for listening.